Hello and welcome to From the Void Up, world building with science and sociology. A world building guide for anyone who cares way too much about the minutia. I am a minutia carer, Tyler Hadar, and today we are going to be talking about biomes and climates, finally. I am extremely excited to talk about biomes and climates because it can almost be compared to ecology at some times, and I like ecology. I do recommend that if you have not listened to my past two episodes, Oceans and Global Climate Cells, that you go and listen to those first. I mean, everything in this episode should be accessible, but you will have way more context if you go into this having to listen to those two first. I absolutely love biomes, so let's let, let's start going into this. I love this topic because it's incredibly important for world building, and you kind of get to talk about ecology, and we do talk a little bit about it in today's interview at the end. But first, we need to go over what different biomes are. Biomes are basically categories of climates, and climates, since that's going to come up a lot today, basically describe the average temperature and rainfall of a region over time. Based on how much water and warmth there is, different plants can grow and different types of animals can survive. Soil types do play into this a little bit, but that's for a soil-specific episode somewhere around the erosion episode. I have plans, y'all. It might be in a year even, but like I'm, I'm gonna talk about it eventually because soil's actually surprisingly cool. Anyway, today... I want to go over some of the most important and common biomes that people want to have in their settings. Stuff like deserts, rainforests, grasslands, the other types of forests. There are tons of forests, actually. We're going to need to talk a little bit about what climates are to understand these biomes and where they commonly occur. So we're going to be talking about what climates are needed for these biomes, where they commonly occur, and what sorts of creatures and plants you would see. And yes, I will be extending this out into fantasy creatures a little bit for each one as well. So, let's just get straight into it today. Today is just me summarizing biomes, so let's start. <laughs> Alright, deserts. Deserts are dry, forbidding, and make for excellent plot points when characters are trying to cross them without dying. There is endless adventure to be had in trekking across a dead landscape in search of an oasis. And... We have quite a few on Earth. Deserts are scientifically classified as receiving 250 millimeters of rain a year or less. Um, that sounds like a lot of millimeters. It's 25 centimeters or about 9 inches of water for an entire year. Uh, by the way, if you don't know, that's not a lot. In fact, Cairo actually one year only got 28 millimeters, which is like... 2.8 centimeters, which is approximately, it's like slightly over an inch for an entire year. <laughs> like, deserts, they don't get rain. That's the whole point. And temperature-wise, this is where it gets kind of interesting. They get really hot in the daytime, but they're absolutely freezing cold at night. The air is extremely dry, so it can barely hold on to any heat at all. Water in the air is what's really good at retaining temperature. If the air is dry in deserts, which it is, when the moment the sun stops providing heat to the space, it all just poof goes away. It just like floats off into space. 
Daytime temperatures can get to like 38 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and at night it can drop to negative 4 degrees Celsius or 24 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not to say it won't get hotter or colder, that's just approximately average. I remember a day that I was in the negative and it was like 42 degrees Celsius, like it can, it can get hotter than that. There are a few different ways for deserts to form. This is where you're going to start wanting to pick out where are your deserts going to show up in your setting. So the first type is going back to the last episode in Global Climate with the Hadley cell. If you'll recall from that, air tends to sink at the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. That's where this air is just pressing back down. These form what are called subtropical deserts. With all of the air falling instead of rising, there's nothing moving upwards to condense into clouds or rain, so nothing then rains. Nothing can even evaporate, really, around here. So these sorts of deserts are the Sahara deserts or the Middle Eastern deserts. And you tend to find them along the 30 degree line of the world, Although you will want to double check your circulation because you might get rain from somewhere else like the oceans. For example, Florida is technically along the Tropic of Cancer, but it definitely is not a subtropical desert. So if the region is getting warm water as well as wind directions like trade winds or westerlies pulling warm air towards them, then they might get rain even if by its latitude it would be a desert. The second type of desert that you'll get are coastal deserts, and they are caused by cold points of circulation along the coastlines. If the water running along a coast is cold enough, it'll cool all the air that blows across it, which would essentially condense all of the water in the air into fog that doesn't really, like, rain ever. It will never rain, it'll just be heavy fog just moving across a region. It might look like there's moisture, but all of that fog doesn't rain down. It never gets to the ground, it just evaporates back up. So it never actually gets any of that moisture moving through it. Like the Atacama Desert in Chile, for example. It's actually considered one of the driest places on Earth, and it's right along the coastline. These are entirely dependent on your circulations, so make sure you double check those. The third type is rain shadow deserts. And they sound really cool, and I've always liked rain shadow deserts, because they also just make so much sense. When air currents carrying water reach mountains, that's like a thing that they have to rise up to get over. The air has to rise which if you listen to last week's episode, you know that if it rises, that means it's going to condense and then rain. So it cools and all of the waters condense, meaning that as the air currents are moving up, as they're moving into the mountain spaces, it all rains on one side of the mountain. By the time the air manages to get to the other side of the mountain and it starts tumbling down the side of these cliffs, it's all rained out, there's no more moisture left in the air that's moving, and it's literally making high pressure zones because it's falling down, it's moving down onto the ground, so it's restricting evaporation there too. You can look at your prevailing winds to determine which side is getting the rain and which side isn't, and of course, you can go back to plate tectonics and check out where you want those mountain ranges to be, pair that up with your global circulation patterns and your, and your uh, prevailing winds, and boom, you got rain shadow deserts. You could also assume these things off of like ocean breezes, as air tends to run in from the water, meaning the coastal side should typically be wetter than the inland side of the mountains. Death Valley is actually caused by the rain shadow effect, 
and it is one of the driest places in North America. So these are, these are legit deserts. And then there are interior deserts or deserts that have no water simply because it took so long for the air to reach that part of the continent, all of the water it was carrying already rained out. They're literally just too far for the water to reach. So they do need to be a good few hundred kilometers from the nearest water source. The deeper into the continent, the drier it gets. In North America, you see that the middle regions get less rain than the coastal areas, but it's not dry enough to be considered like a desert desert. This only happens on very large continents. For example, Asia. That's why you have the Gobi Desert in the middle there. It's because that's a large enough continent that it literally cannot get water there. All of these deserts will have similarly adapted wildlife and plants because the climate is extremely specific. It takes certain types of adaptations to survive and tends to have more specific types than other regions. Like plants. At the base of every ecosystem is some organism making glucose or sugar from the sun, some water, and CO2. Those are typically plants. Deserts, despite how lifeless they can be, do still have some that try very hard not to die. These tend to be very thick-skinned plants to trap in as much water as possible. The thicker the leaf is, the less water the sun can evaporate off, meaning it will survive better with less water. This is how you get plants like succulents and aloe vera. Very thick leaves and tons of water and juice on the inside. It stores all the water it can get on the inside to slowly use up, kind of like the camel of the plants. Isn't that's kind of why camels are also in the deserts. It's a classic survival technique. And then there are the classic cacti, which operate on a similar system. Technically, I had to look this up. Cacti are actually a category of succulent. Succulents have leaves and cacti have these things called areoles. A-R-E-O-L-E-S. I could have looked up how to pronounce that before I recorded, but I did not. There's the spelling. <laughs> Congratulations to me, I guess. So these are kind of like stem cushion-shaped segments of the cacti, which can grow flowers or really thick hairs, which are like spikes. And then above the producers, the plants making the glucose, you have primary consumers, the herbivores eating the plants to get the sugars that they make. And here you'll have bugs, which tend to get forgotten, but the bugs actually are pretty pivotal because not much else really wants to eat a cactus. So typically people who eat whatever is trying to eat a cactus are like lizards and small mammals. And that's when we start to see the predators pop up. Fennec foxes, snakes, jackrabbits, those sorts of things. Animals that have adapted to the arid environments are technically called xericoles. Xericoles? Another word I could have looked up the pronunciation of before. X-E-R-O-C-O-L-E-S. Technically, I could try pronouncing that as xericoles. Xerocolis? Yeah, I could pronounce that xerocolis if I really wanted to. Moving on. <laughs> these, uh, these desert-adapted creatures tend to be nocturnal to avoid the extremely hot sun and often burrow underground as opposed to staying at the surface, which is why Dune makes so much sense with one of its primary predators being giant underground worms that definitely inspired purple worms. They would be avoiding the surface and the heat as much as possible. Any burrowing creature would make sense, but they will probably not be all that large. 
The larger the creature is, the more energy it requires to go about day-to-day -day life. The more energy, the more it needs to hunt, and the more it needs to go out and spend its energy. They should be focused on retaining their stores more than anything else, as most desert creatures do. However, magical creatures that fit in this environment and don't necessarily need to consume glucose would probably be just fine roaming the deserts in the daytime. Almost anything else would be nocturnal and resting in whatever spot shades they can find. Also scorpions. Deserts are an excellent place for there to be scorpions. And then there are the cold deserts, otherwise known as tundras. These pretty much exist exclusively near the poles, where sinking cold air at the top of the polar cell keeps water from evaporating. Temperatures never exceed 20 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperatures regularly can get down to negative 40 degrees Celsius, which is actually negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Fun fact, that's where they overlap. So, like hot deserts, they receive between 150 to 250 millimeters of rain a year. Again, not that much. Pretty much the only regions that get conditions like this are near the poles, which remain extremely cold from all of the glaciers that form around them, even in the 24-hour daylight summers. This freezing means that the soil is in what's called a permafrost. It's literally got no liquid water in it, it is solid ice in between all of the dirt particles. So plants really don't like this um, because they tend to need to have roots that go into the soil and if the soil is just ice particles, it's a problem. Plants here really don't get larger than shrubs. Interestingly enough, it's actually a pretty wet area, all things considered, but it's not a rainy area. It never gets warm enough for things to evaporate off, since all of the moisture just stays close to the ground. This is why plants don't evolve to retain the water as much as hot deserts, so they tend to be more thin-leaved and mossy. It doesn't quite rain frequently, but when it does, it's not going to evaporate away, it'll just freeze and not be accessible to plants and animals because it's frozen, not because it's not there. Because of how little grows, both from the lack of water and the lack of heat, there really aren't too many animals here as well. Small insects and amphibians can survive as long as they've adapted to the harsh winters and becoming cryogenically frozen. Or they're migratory creatures that travel south in the winter, like polar bears. Water-based creatures that often exist nearby are super blubbery and therefore have lots of fats and oils in them, which is why lots of people like hunting them, because that's good food. Unlike hot deserts, where creatures are able to avoid the heat and not use up energy, tundra creatures tend to focus on getting as fat as they can to store the energy rather than just use carbohydrates. They can therefore be much larger, but often still try to not remain up north for the whole season. Anything that does stay up there like that would probably be extremely large, like polar bears which do not hibernate but rather just fatten up and move south. So other creatures, like yetis, will probably be large and furry and or blubbery. Which makes you wonder about white dragons, since I mean they're all ice-based. I suppose they are naturally adapted to the cold. Honestly, white dragons in the polar setting, it's deserving of an episode. I'm going to move on now. 
You can probably, for dragons, you can probably say magic. But yes, unless it's a large lizard creature, which shouldn't be in the cold anyway because they're literally cold-blooded and being too cold would literally kill them so fast, you're going to have lots of large furry and fatty animals migrating in and out of the region. That can be your yetis. Um, I, how many other polar monsters are there? Not that many, actually. And now we get to forests, because there are a bunch of different types of forests. These are incredibly important and biodiverse places. Essentially, they've got tons of different types of species that can be supported here, where both deserts and tundras only really support one or two types. This supports like a wide variety. This is where the majority of our biodiversity starts to play in. There are different types, which depends on soil type, temperature, and rainfall, but we're really only going to be talking about temperature and rainfall for right now. So we're going to start from the poles and move out towards the equator. Near the poles, you get a lot of boreal forests or taigas. That's the same thing, different names. These are pine forests that typically fall between the 50 and 60 degree lines right along the edges of the polar circles. These are actually the most common biome on Earth, probably entirely thanks to Eurasia taking up tons of space along that northern 50 to 60 parallels. They have wet and warm-ish summers, but rarely go above 20 degrees Celsius. Winters are long, cold, and dry, with more snowfall than anything else. Think like Alaska or Siberia. Plants here tend to be evergreen trees, since staying active during the winters is the only way for them to retain enough energy to survive the long winters. They may be the occasional deciduous tree, but they are sparser in a much more conifer environment, conifer trees being like the needle types. Technically, conifer is a type of evergreen tree, and they've got needles, kind of like why desert plants have thick leaves. It's less space for water to evaporate out, so they can survive with less water. Because it's colder, a lot more of that water is going to be inaccessible in the form of snow or ice, so they need to be able to retain water more than other types of evergreen trees. Animals in here tend to be furry or hibernate, so you get lots of wolves, lynxes, rather than like coyotes and mountain lions. Fur coats are going to be a lot thicker, but not quite so extreme as the poles, since at least stuff grows here. You actually can eat stuff to keep your temperature up, you don't need to survive without eating for months. New growth in conifer forests is pretty rare, um, except for where trees have come down in storms, because conifers actually require more sunlight to grow, but they also are the plants that have thicker canopies that block out the light. So underbrush growth in sub-canopies are really rare, and it makes it difficult to replace older trees unless burns come through and clear the land out to make room for new ones. This is also why, if you ever look at the stages of forest development, conifers are seen as a colonizing plant. They come in and slowly get phased out by deciduous trees like oaks and elms, at least if they're in temperate environments. Deciduous leafy trees can handle the shade pretty easily, uh, meaning they can grow up under older pines until those pines die and then get outperformed by the new growths and eventually get replaced. Which leads us to the second type of forest, temperate forests. These typically grow in regions further south, further towards the... <laughs> these typically grow in regions closer to the equator. If I accidentally replace closer to the equator with south, it's because I live in the northern hemisphere. No hate to my southern hemisphere friends. Uh, my apologies, it's a force of habit. 
Temperate forests typically grow between 50 and 40 degrees and are mostly seen in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't read that far. Sorry, Southern Hemisphere people again. But it's mostly because the Northern Hemisphere has a lot more continent in that region than the Southern Hemisphere. So think like Vermont or Massachusetts. And yes, there are lots of pines, but there's also a surprising amount of oaks and maples and other leafy trees. These have the climate of pretty consistent rainfall throughout the year, typically 75 to 150 centimeters, not millimeters, centimeters, and strong winters and summers. They really get those seasons. It can get down to negative 30 degrees Celsius and then rise to 30 Celsius in the summer. And there are a couple categories of temperate depending on the rainfall di distribution. Wet winters and dry summers mean a lot more conifers because they can grow better in the winter when they actually can be active during this precipitation time. Also because they don't evaporate away all of their water in the summer because they have little needles. Dry conifer forests tend to have lower precipitation and occur at higher altitudes. Like if you've ever hiked up a mountain and noticed how it becomes more and more pine-filled as you go up. And then Mediterranean forests, which have the most precipitation in the winter, but very little, under 100 centimeters a year. Then temperate coniferous forests, which have mild winters and get over 200 centimeters of rain a year. Finally, they're the temperate broadleafed rainforests, which have frost-free winters and more than 150 centimeters of rain distributed nicely throughout the whole year. These different forests typically have a gradient of pine to deciduous and then have a very diverse plant makeup, often with three to four types of trees per square kilometer. Animals have less dense furs, so you get timber wolves rather than gray wolves, and mountain lions, bobcats, and foxes, and the like. This biome is very common along the northern coastal United States, east and west. The variations come into play with the east coast having more temperate broadleaves and conifers from the amount of rainfall. Seattle gets a lot of very famous rain from a very specific air current off of the Pacific, as well as being in the wet zone of a mountain rain shadow. So the region actually gets fully classified as a temperate rainforest. Magical creatures in forests kind of makes sense. You're going to get like your dire wolves. Pretty much anything can probably, if it's not specifically adapted, so many different creatures can make it in a forest, quite frankly. As long as they're not like oversized herbivores, they should be fine in those forests. What's really fancy then is the rainforests. Tropical rainforests. These places are hot and humid with upwards of 200 centimeters of rain yearly, but with pretty varying temperatures. Along the equator, wherever the Hadley cell has its uplift points, you're likely to get evergreen forests. Not conifers, but rather stuff like mahogany and eucalyptus. As a New Englander myself, it is really odd to consider a leafy tree year-round. Uh, what with the winters up here, leaves tend to fall. I'm not accustomed to seeing leaves not fall, but I guess it's a thing. It, and it also makes sense if you consider that those places never get below 20 degrees Celsius and it's raining heavily year-round. And these are very much along the equator type of tropical rainforests. And then there are seasonal rainforests, which have varying rainfall throughout the year. 
They have very short dry periods, followed by heavy, heavy rainfalls in the wet season. And then there are semi-evergreen rainforests, which have longer dry seasons. There are far more deciduous trees that make up an upper canopy, but below are the evergreens that support the forests in the off-seasons. And then there are the wet deciduous forests that have the longest dry seasons, and typically are associated with monsoons being when they finally get their rain. A general pattern is, if the rains are available year-round, evergreen trees are very common. And it makes sense that if they have access to growing materials all year, they might as well try and grow all year. Meanwhile, in seasonally diverse regions where rainfall varies, trees will try and make the most of the wet seasons where they can. Evergreens also do better with weaker soils. In cold regions, decomposition of organic matter takes a lot longer, meaning the nutrient deposits plants and animals would normally provide are scarce in soils. Evergreens are more efficient in bringing in nutrients, so they do better in less nutrient-rich soils. Or, in the case of tropical rainforests, they do such a good job of absorbing nutrients that there's never anything left over in the soil. It's actually pretty much impossible, like almost 100% impossible, to healthily start growing crops and cleared out rainforest space because all of the nutrients are gone. There's nothing left in the soil to farm for farmers to use, and it's genuinely a problem, not necessarily for agriculture, but the amount of people who try to use rainforest space cleared out for agriculture, it's just a mess and it really is unproductive. But beyond the soil, temperature regulates whether or not you can have conifers or trees with larger leaves. That's how evergreens have those dramatically different types from pines and hemlocks to live oaks and hollies. Now, where there could be forests by temperature, sometimes it doesn't get wet enough and you end up with a grassland. Now, this is another biome type, grasslands. And there are two types, savannas and temperate grasslands. They do not have dissimilar rain patterns, although temperate regions do tend to have stronger seasons. But the temperate regions have dramatically varying temperatures, dipping below freezing in winters and reaching maybe into the teens Celsius in the summers. Savannas have more consistent rainfall throughout the year and get much hotter and never get freezing or colder. They also tend to have the occasional trait, like acacia trees, where temperates might have like an oak tree every now and then. Temperate grasslands themselves actually have distinctions. There are prairies, like in the Mid-America, which have really tall grasses with really deep roots. These are excellent for grazing animals, and therefore predators that eat grazing animals. Steppes, on the other hand, have short grasses, which means that the soil is more prone to erosion, so you're looking at mid-Asian steppes. One of your greatest tools in figuring out which biome you have in which like subclimate you have is a climate graph or a climatograph. These are my second favorite type of graph in environmental science. They really help you visualize the amount of rainfall and temperature going on throughout the year. It's got an x-axis representing month by month. So you got like a January, February, March, April, do it up um, along the x-axis. And then it's got not one, but two y-axes going up and down. And like they can switch back and forth. But on one of them, you're going to have temperature, average temperature for the month. And sometimes it'll even include it in both Fahrenheit and Celsius if they're being nice. Otherwise, you can use Google. 
This one is a line graph, so you can see the average temperature for each month with lines connecting it, so you can see the general shape of how the temperatures change throughout the year. And then the other side is the amount of rain per month, average amount of rain in a bar graph. So then you can pretty easily see, again, the shape that the rainfalls take. And then it also then means that you've got a line graph on top of a bar graph. So it's really easy to see how those two are related and how they shift at the same time. These are a quick and easy way to identify different biomes and can provide more information on what sorts of climates you can expect from different regions. This will help you for any seasonal changes, like which regions should be getting heavy snow and which ones just sit around cold and dry all winter long. Just make sure you're careful reading the axis labels on the um, y-axis because sometimes they label them funny so it looks way warmer or wetter than it actually is. They might put zero in different places so they might on the surface look like they ha are the same temperature but one might actually be like 10 degrees and the other could be 30. Make sure you're checking your axes. The only other step in this process since you now have the basics of the different biomes is determining what goes where, which is why we have the past two episodes. Areas along the coasts typically have wet air from the ocean, even if it's colder. It will still have at least more than deep inland zones. Uplift areas will always have more rain and warm air currents in distance from the climate controlling coasts. Inputting what sorts of climates you should be getting based off of your circulation in your climate and in your ocean as well as even your geography and how it's relating to your geography, you can get an approximate of how much rain it could be getting based off of your region. And then using your climate predictions, you can then establish which biomes are where. And then you can research even more. USC Berkeley has a very good website that's extremely easy to understand that explains the different biomes through their Museum of Paleontology site. Now, inside of each of these biomes are ecosystems. Ecosystems themselves have very complex structures and interactions within their biomes and between the creatures that live here. Today, we're going to be talking with somebody who's very cool because A, he's a teacher, and B, he saw the potential for biome structure, but in a game format. All right. Hi, thank you so much for joining me today. If you could just quickly introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Matt Montrose. Um, I'm a biology teacher and creator of an ecology-based card game. That's really cool. So um, what's your background then in science for like studying and being a teacher? I've always loved biology. Uh, eventually, I actually was a high school um, English teacher in Japan for a few years um, and decided to switch over to science, which has always been my number one love. But um, in Japan, they you know need English teachers more than science teachers for someone who's a native English speaker. So um, when I came back, I um, took some graduate courses and got a master's in teaching science. And uh, now I'm back at the high school, but teaching biology. That's really cool. And it's funny that you mentioned that you taught English in Japan because my mom actually did that too. Did she? <laughs> so, yeah, That's she awesome. did for a couple of years. So let's talk about ecology then, because you're the creator of a game called Ecologies. Obviously, it's based in ecology. So mm -hmm. could you explain a little bit about what ecology is, what, the, what it studies? Yeah, so ecology is the study of the interactions between 
living things with each other and then also um, non-living things in the environment. So um, whereas biology is um, focusing on life and maybe an individual organism, ecology is looking at kind of the web of interactions between, again, not only um, all the different organisms, but also the environment that they live in, the water, the soil, the rock, all that. And just in case anybody's going to be doing research on this, um, the non-living things are abiotic and the living things are biotic, like biology, because I, I enjoy throwing in terms just in case people yeah. want to research out side of this. Yeah, and we use we use those terms a lot in class and also in the game. Abiotic, like you said, being the non-living parts and biotic being the living parts. Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about the structure of an ecosystem, like the levels of organization? Sure. So we can study uh, individuals, um, but then once we go higher than that, we get into populations. So that's talking about the same kind of organism, but just a lot of them. So like maybe a population of hamsters on the Siberian steppe or something like that. And then once you go a higher level than the population, you're looking at communities. And communities are going to be not just that one species, but all the different species that it's interacting with, both maybe the the plants that it's eating, um, the things preying on it, all that stuff. And so that makes up the community. Uh, After you go one level higher, then you're looking at an ecosystem, and that's going to be specifically those creatures together as well as the physical environment that they're living in. So that, that's going to be your ecosystem. And then where, like, in, in my game, we focus a lot on biomes. That's our next level up. Once you go higher than an ecosystem, it's a biome, which are kind of this nebulous term, and there's a lot of disagreement with how many biomes there are and what they're like and what makes them. But maybe the easiest way to say it is um, it's a collection of ecosystems that have Uh, similar traits, uh, especially in terms of weather, precipitation, and the kind of plants and animals that live there. And it sounds more complicated than it is. We all know what a desert is. You know, Mm -hmm. we all know what a rainforest is. Those kind of larger things um, are biomes. Yeah. And in the episode, I go through a lot of different biomes as kind of explanation. So uh, you can get a sense of what different types there are. So going more into the way that the communities interact more so than just the whole ecosystem. Could you explain a little bit about what makes a particular ecosystem healthier or stronger than another one? Yeah. Um, So this is really pertinent for world building and then just us living in the world. Um, It's it's really all about biodiversity. The more uh, varied types of life you have, the stronger and more resilient your ecosystem is going to be. That's because you're creating more possible releases for pressure and chains that if they break, don't take down the whole system. So for example, if uh, you have one type of plant and that plant suffers a disease uh, and that plant dies, everything above it is wiped out. But the more variety you have, if something happens to one kind of creature, um, it's not going to take out the whole system. And it's something that we're struggling with as humans on our planet. Um, Human beings have greatly reduced the amount of biodiversity that there is on our planet. 
Um, so it's something that we really need to try to reverse so that we have more resilient um, ecosystems that can survive even if things change. Which makes sense. The more things you have available to eat, the less likely it is that you're going to lose your entire food source sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So in regards to like the sort of what eats what, could you just give a little bit of an explanation on like trophic levels and oh, yeah. th- those sorts of things? Yeah. So for the most part, I can't say it's 100%, but for the most part, all energy comes from the sun. And basically trophic levels are just how that energy uh, moves through the system that we call um, an ecosystem or a biome. Um, And so at the very bottom, you have these magical things that can actually harness the power of the sun. Those are producers. And typically people think of producers as plants, but it's not just plants. It's anything that can do photosynthesis. Um, So algae and there's there's a ton of little critters that can do it. But for the most part, you're looking at plants, producers. And we call them producers because they produce sugar. So it's, I, I tell my students that I like to think of it as the plants have the ability to eat the sun. And we, they make sugars out of that energy and then we uh, eat the plants as animals, we eat plants. And um, that's our way of getting at the sun's energy. So after producers, um, you have your primary consumers. Primary just meaning they're the first ones to get those sugars from the plants. Uh, And then from there, you just have uh, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, basically just higher levels where, you know, things are eating whatever got the energy from the thing below it. And I guess the last quick thing I would say about that is um, it's important to note that the energy is not very efficient. So you only get about 10% of that energy at every level. So if you've got something like if you're building a wall or something, if you have something like a dragon, some giant creature, it has to rely on so much beneath it to survive um, because you're losing so much energy at each level. So um, for in, in the real world example, if you've got something like an eagle or an owl, it needs acres and acres of plants that are feeding thousands of rodents that are then, you know, as you go up the pyramid, you get less energy. Yeah, so the really large creatures are going to require massive amounts of land. It kind of explains the red dragons taking over a countryside (laughs) just immediately like that. So going into those sorts of like I guess kind of invasive species, if you can call a dragon an invasive species. Um, How does that then kind of interact with the biodiversity in an ecosystem and the, um, how how does it then damage or change what you've got? Yeah, so um, invasive species are just uh, species that are, are not from an area. And once they come in, they have, they have adaptations that are different from the area they're coming into. And so they may be immune to the predators that are there. And so you end up with a situation where nothing can eat that creature. Um, And so the population can, can boom really large. And it's very disruptive because life evolves and always has and will continue to, but it's all about time. So if you have um, an environment change slowly over, you know, thousands and millions of years, all the different organisms that live there are getting used to each other. You have these, you know, fine-tuned balancing acts. Um, But then when things happen really quickly, you know, uh, 
say, you know, in a human instance, if we bring rats to an island where there have never been rats, all of a sudden, you know, all that fine tuning is gone. The rats have no predators and the things that live there have no defenses towards them. So birds have never had to deal with rats eating their eggs. So they don't have anything. They're not doing anything to protect themselves. The rats eat all the eggs, all the birds die. And what you end up with is uh, less biodiversity. And as you said, less biodiversity means that when other issues crop up, it's just going to keep getting worse, mm-hmm. which is less than ideal. Because there's like two kinds of ways of being a better structured environment. There's the resistance and resilience. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> okay. I, I'm two years away from my AP environmental class, so yeah. sometimes the terms are a little loose. Yeah. But yeah. Um, So it sounds like a lot of diversity allows for resistance. How does it then play into resilience that coming back from these damages? There's there's a whole thing about ecological succession. Um, Even if there is damage to an environment, things do bounce back and um, resilience is how well they can come back from, from events. So even let's say that certain plants and animals will have the ability, if something comes into the environment, they can adapt quickly and uh, not lose out. So they can kind of absorb that, that impact instead of just, yeah. So what sort of damages do you think would potentially cause more long-term? Like, is there like a scaling of what type of damage to an ecosystem would make it worse? Yeah. Yeah, there is. There's a whole graph of different impacts and how long they last. I'm looking for, I think I actually have a a graph that shows that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, recovery time for disasters, things things, uh, that are like lightning strikes or tree falling or a landslide they don't affect that large of an area and um, things can quickly recover. But as we get, especially human caused disruptions, um, but some, some natural disasters uh, are bigger in scale and take longer. So um, when you get into like agriculture, oil spills, um, those take uh, kind of in the medium range along with forest fires and floods, which are natural, but can cover a very wide area. Um, then we get our volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, and I think at the very like largest impact, longest time is meteor strikes. As we know, we've had meteor strikes that have taken out, you know, huge portions of uh, life on Earth. So those can take a long time. And in terms of human impact, um, industrial pollution, urbanization putting salt into the soil. So you know, if humans uh, salt the the earth. It takes a long time for that to reverse itself. Yeah. And then things like all of our nuclear waste or uh, weapons, things like that. Yeah. And a lot of forest clearing for more medieval societies since medieval aesthetics tend to be the fantasy vibe. Mm -hmm. So deforestation, farming practices, the older farming practices aren't quite so intensive as modern, but still... And it's interesting to mention forest fires, because now all I'm thinking about is a red dragon coming in and burning down a forest. Oh, yeah. Because uh-huh. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of almost magical invasive species when it comes to fantasy settings, which is mm-hmm. rather interesting to engage with if you've got a species that in and of itself is a natural disaster. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a fantasy setting, though, you can also 
have the opposite where you have uh, endemic species that have some sort of, you know, almost supernatural ability to adapt or resist things as well. So you might, you know, you might have um, creatures that evolve more quickly or are able to deal with changes more than in real life. Yeah, it makes sense. And I've I've always loved this. There was a, a post that I had seen at one point where it's like magical instances that could have changed the region's biome even, um, mm-hmm. or at least the ecosystem and like the concept of a cleric who doesn't have resurrection spells yet trying to just put all of their healing spells into a fallen party member and then it just seeps into the land and now you have a really vibrant forest that just can't go away. Mm, um, which yeah. is a really tragic cool. image, but it's <laughs> it's also kind of beautiful, that concept. Yeah. Magic playing into the life, I think, comes in a lot more than just the basis of plate tectonics. So yeah, it's always fun to talk about that. So we can probably start talking a little bit more about your game ecologies, because now that we're kind of getting into the more of the magic side of things but also the game is very much based in the science of how ecosystems work am i correct yeah so in our game we have seven biomes as i said there's you know these terms are made up by scientists and i I mean made up's not exactly the right word because it's based on a lot of evidence but they are highly debated and and disagreed about constantly and they're always being updated with depending on you know who has greater sway in the scientific community. But there are some sort of general ones that everyone agrees with. So in my game, we have uh, marine, tundra, coniferous forest, temperate forest, tropical forest, grasslands, and uh, desert. And a lot of that has to do with uh, temperature and precipitation. Uh, Marine is kind of separate because it's a very insulated environment. Besides for that top layer that's interfacing, things are more stable underneath the water. But your tundra is places where there's permafrost. So there's a layer um, under the soil that's always frozen. Coniferous forests, sometimes um, called boreal or taiga. Um, but I call them coniferous just because that's the, the main plants that grow there are going to be your conifers. And it's interesting because it's, it's really snowy, but in a lot of ways, a coniferous forest is like a desert because that snow is frozen. So it's not actually available as water. So a lot of things that live in this forest, especially in the winter, they're having to adapt in a lot of the ways that desert um, ecologies do because of the lack of water, because uh, it's coming down as frozen snow. That's kind of cool, because when I was researching, um, I was looking into different forest types for the earlier parts of the uh, episode, and I noticed a lot of times that the conifers were in the drier climates, so that does kind of make yeah. sense. They have those um, waxy needles. That's what their leaves are. And they invest heavily in those leaves. They don't lose them. Like, a, you know, a broadleaf forest is going to turn orange and red and drop their leaves. But conifers, they invest a lot of energy into making those little needles. They keep them and uh, they don't want them to dry out. So they're covered with wax. So they're very, yeah, they're very much adapted to withstanding dry environments. Yeah. Then so the next one is a temperate forest, which um, is just more um, seasonal temperate zone forest. Those are the ones that are going to go through your classic four seasons kind of thing. Then tropical forest biome. Um, that's just things forests near the equator, and you know those are famously rainforests and things like that. So there are some forests near the equator that are not as wet 
they're still tropical forests, but they're not uh, as wet. Then grassland biome um, is a really interesting one. Grass is a fairly new uh, invention by nature. And uh, it's amazing because it keeps the active growing parts underneath ground or right at ground level. And uh, so animals can chomp on the top and eat them. If animals eat the tips of other plants, those plants die. But grass is kind of designed to let things eat it and survive. And so you can get these amazing, huge herds of animals. Um, so that's kind of what makes grasslands so unique is these massive herds. And then desert uh, is going to be your low precipitation habitat. So, you know, people obviously think of deserts as incredibly hot, but deserts can also be, you know, bone chillingly cold. Um, it's just about there being no precipitation there. Kind of like Mordor. Mordor is actually supposed to be cold. And everybody oh, yeah. forgets that Mordor is a cold desert, but that's what it is. Um, since your ecologies game is very much based off of developing like healthy ecosystems, how does the mechanics of the work kind of engage with the science behind it? Yeah, so um, the mechanics are very much about making uh, an, a healthy ecology. And so if players have just a few plants or animals, they're not able to access these uh, healthy ecology bonuses. And so as they get a larger food web that has, you know, more resilience, then they can unlock bonuses. So they're rewarded for having biodiversity, essentially. The mechanics come into play if they, there are certain cards, biotic and abiotic factors that can um, kill an organism. And if that's destroyed and it's like, you know, one of the main uh, pillars holding up that ecology, then everything can come crashing down. Ah, the keystone species. Yeah, yeah. So I've had players who are building a giant food web and it's all based on prickly pear cactus or something like that. And then someone takes out your prickly pear cactus and it's all over. No way to survive without a connection to the sun. That's cool. And I love how the keystone species gets drawn in there you know, focusing on diversity, but also acknowledging the fact that there are sometimes those species that you didn't, like, I guess the cactus is less of a keystone as it is just a food source, but like specific species being involved that don't feel like they're as involved as you'd expect. And then you mm -hmm. take them out and everything suddenly changes. Like the wolves getting reintroduced to Yellowstone yeah. and how that literally redirected rivers. That's yeah. a cool one. Yeah, it's amazing. And the, the biotic and abiotic factors, uh, some of them are helpful and some of them are harmful, which is also true in, in real life. Again, the uh, biotic factors and abiotic factors can be specific things. Like, for example, you know, a goat is a biotic factor. It's a living thing in the, in the environment. But you can also have like the concept of competition or predation happening or, you know, mutualism, all these kind of larger concepts, there are still uh, factors that affect gameplay and in real life, the biomes. Yeah, that's cool. I actually kind of want to go into that a little bit more, the concepts of the different specific types of relationships between organisms. Um, sure. Do you want to explain those a little bit and then go into how those interact with the game a little bit more? Yeah, um, so there's a lot of different ways we describe the interactions between different animals. And it's all about who is benefiting and maybe who is not benefiting. So, for example, one that's not commonly known is commensalism, where 
there's one animal that's benefiting, but the other animal is not really being harmed or getting benefits. It's, you know, one of the example of this would be like um, barnacles on a whale. The whale's not really affected. I mean, maybe on a microscopic scale, drag in the water is different or something. But the, for the barnacle, it's really important. The whale takes them all these different places, gives them a place to hang on to, to get food. So yeah, that's commensalism. Then you have things like parasitism. So parasites, they have a host. And so the parasite is benefiting, obviously. The host is being harmed. Yeah, let's see. We also have mutualism. So both things are are benefiting, right? So uh, hummingbirds and flowers, they're in this together. Uh, hummingbirds and flowers both get something out of it. That's mutualism. So then how do you then implement those different sorts of relationships into the game because you mentioned that there's like the concepts of competition so um there are there's cards uh like there's a parasite card and that one helps the player who's using it and hurts the player who's having it used on them Uh, it takes away victory points so the game ends when someone gets 12 victory points and so putting a parasite on someone's food web brings down their victory points slightly so that you know mimics like real life and then um the ones that help both people like mutualism that's where you draw cards but your the other opponents also draw cards so it's kind of like multiple people are benefiting um so the cards reflect um the science in that way that's really cool i love the concept i i need to i need to get all of the teachers at my school in on this <laughs> thanks thanks um, yeah. So where can people find the game if they're interested in getting it for themselves or maybe for their classrooms? Yeah. So our website is montrosebiology.com and we sell on Etsy. Um, so I you know, have my own inventory and ship that out through an Etsy shop. Um, we also work with some third-party printers, which take a little longer to get the game, but uh, especially for international orders, that can be a good way to go. But for here in the U.S., Etsy is probably the best bet. And again, that's all you can find all that through the, the website, montrosebiology.com. And we are launching uh, an expansion slash sequel game in about a month. And it will have seven new biomes. So I gave you the original seven, which are kind of the big agreed upon longstanding ones. Um, But there are a lot of more smaller, minor biomes. Um, So in our expansion, we have uh, caves. So there's, you know, the whole concept of living underground. Uh, The urban biome, which is slightly controversial, but humans are here. We create cities and there is still life there. Chaparral is um, kind of your scrubland. That's um, Mediterranean, California, parts of Australia. Things where um, you don't have a lot of trees, but you have a lot of scrub, smaller bushes or trees that don't grow that big. Then you have uh, riparian biomes. So that's all of our river systems, wherever land and river are interfacing. Vernal pools. So a vernal pool biome uh, is a cool one. Vernal pools, vernal means spring. So they're pools of water that only exist during the spring. And the reason why that's so important is uh, if a pool of water stays year round, fish are going to find their way there and fish eat almost everything else. (laughs) So if you have a vernal pool where it's only a pond during the spring, 
you can have frogs, uh, newts, salamanders, all these things that have a hard time competing with fish. They can live there and create offspring. And there's, it's a whole kind of world to itself. And it changes, it, it dries up and then becomes real again every spring. Um, we have a swamp biome, which most people think of a swamp. They're actually probably thinking of a marsh or a bog. Um, but a swamp means that it's a forested wetland. So if you don't have trees in your wetland, you're not really looking at a swamp. And then the last one is a mangrove biome. And uh, those are very special trees um, that can tolerate salt water. They live on the edge um, of tropical areas. And, you know, when the tide goes out, you can see their huge roots. Uh, they create wonderful habitat for lots of different more tropical species. So those are the seven new ones that we've got. Nice. Those all sound really cool. And there are a couple that I did not know and I have learned about and they're <laughs> very cool sounding. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and I wish you the best of luck. Of course. Thank you for having me. So thanks again for coming on and talking about ecologies. I'm not kidding when I say that I'm going to share this with all of the bio teachers I've ever had, which is slightly too many. <laughs> anyway, of course, there are so many more biomes than there anybody really considers. As he was saying, the definitions are rather loose and pretty variable depending on who you talk to. I presented a couple pretty common ones, and then he came in and presented a bunch of others that I forgot even could be classified as biomes. So there is so much more detail that if you wanted to, feel free to do. There are resources online. I will eventually, when I come back to sciences and stuff, I'll probably, once a science rotation, throw in another chunk of different types of biomes and ecosystems. But of course, there is so much research that you can do independently, and it's kind of endless, honestly, when it comes to designing your ecosystems. So feel free to just roam around on the internet. You can like post some stuff that you find, tag me in it or something at From the Void Up, you know? I'd love to see what it is you're researching and finding out. And also I will, of course, be accumulating as many of these as possible. If you have any pressing questions um, outside of just the research, or if you want me to take a look at what you are working on, uh, just go ahead and reach out. I have an email at fromthevoidup at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at fromthevoidup. I will be posting updates there. I promise I'm going to remember to do that more. I am terrible at consistent social media, but I will try. I will try. So hopefully this will start becoming more active as I start to really force myself to post more. Hopefully if you follow, there will actually start to be more stuff getting posted on those. So check them out and, you know, follow them because I promise I'll give you more content. Feel free also to ask me anything. Send me a DM or anything like that. Even if I can't make a whole episode out of your questions, I want to help you guys research. I love researching. L give me more stuff to look up, please. Um, and hey, I mean, if it's a big enough question, then I'll add it to the endless list of things that I need to look up. And also, if I could just say that I have a YouTube channel that should be getting automatic uploads of my episodes, as well as tons of resource playlists. Um, stuff like Coriolis Effects explanations that will hopefully be an endless pit of just 
so many different explanations of the Coriolis effect. Any YouTube videos that I use as resources, I'm making playlists for the different episodes so you can go back in and get a little bit more detail, see what it is I'm drawing from. So check out the YouTube channel at From the Void Up as well if you want any bonus information. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Feel free to subscribe on whatever streaming site it is you use. And honestly, feel free to leave a review. Um, If you're on an app that allows you to leave reviews, just like give me some stars, say what you like, say what you don't like. Uh, I'll read those and see what's going on with that. And you know, it's always good to improve. So drop some feedback on those. Special thanks to Jerry Ritigliano for the theme music and Dylan Desmaris for the art. I have been your host, your guide through all of the minutiae of the world, Tyler Hadar. And in the meanwhile, keep on building. I will see you all next week.